everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks, Lori LeBay. Um, and I just want to welcome you to our show today. We are going to have a lot of fun and uh, great discussion uh, talking to somebody who is uh, living with the diagnosis. Um, but before I introduce uh, my co-host and our guest, I want to uh, just let our audience know who Alzheimer's is, what we do, and why we do it. Um, bottom line, I switched careers back in '09 um, due to my mom living with dementia for 30 years, and I just got really frustrated um, not being able to find information, um, services, products, and tools that I thought was really critical to our family. And so created Alzheimer's Speaks to lift everyone's voice and um, try to help people connect the dots to resources that they need. And um, most importantly, raise the voice of those living with dementia. Um, so we are basically an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift dementia care from crisis to comfort. I also personally uh, go around the country and do a lot of speaking and training and, and help with um, kicking off dementia-friendly communities and um, just trying to shift that dementia care culture from crisis to comfort. We believe here that by just having these everyday conversations and sharing knowledge that we can have an impact and, and we can change how people perceive this disease and hopefully remove the isolation and the stigmas attached to memory loss and help people continue to live with purpose if they're diagnosed or if they're walking alongside uh, someone supporting their friend or loved one as well. At our core, um, we also believe that collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia, and I know it's working thanks to each one of you. You see your likes, your clicks, and your shares with your your Facebook friends, your Pinterest peeps, your Twitter tribe, your LinkedIn colleagues um, got us named the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, um, according to Share Care and Dr. Oz. Um, Maria Shriver this last fall also recognized us as an architect of change for humanity. And that was thanks to, to all of you sharing our content um, with your sphere. I, I truly believe that it's really important because, you know, there's so many people in our own circles that are dealing with this disease um, and they don't know where to go. And um, there's still a lot of embarrassment wrapped in this disease. And the more information we can push out, um, and again, Alzheimer's Speaks isn't about just pushing out our information, it's about everybody's information, um, the easier it's going to be for people to reach out and grab it when they need it. And I, I just think that that is um, so huge. I also want to mention before we get started that um, block off your calendars because November 11th through the 18th, we are going on a Caribbean cruise and we are going to have a conference aboard the ship and we have developed a magnificent team um, to help us 
um, get filled with hope and relax and rejuvenate our souls and our relationships um, while we kind of bask in the sun. Um, we have Cindy Lewizinski, who is heading up a grassroots um, movement in Colorado for dementia. We have Becky Watson, who is now joining us as a music therapist. And really the highlight of our show are our people living with dementia, um, who will play a big role in the conference. Uh, Harry Urban, Michael Ellenbogen, Lori Shear, and Mary Reed. And we're hoping to get more if we have listeners or um, businesses out there that would like to sponsor somebody. We would love to hear from you. We are taking donations um, to be able to help get more people on the cruise who maybe can't uh, can't afford to be part. You can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and you'll see a, a big flyer on it. You can print that off. You can also find out more program information or contact me as well. Uh, so let's get let's get started with uh, our show today. Um, first of all, I want to introduce Paul Ann Gordon. Paul Ann Gordon is this amazing woman who has such great insights as to the disease because she too is living with it. She has written a, a book um, regarding vascular dementia that is just wonderful and is now available on Amazon. She is one of our experts on Dementia Chat and just offers such um, great information um, so many things we don't think of, um, and we, we need to hear that voice of people with dementia. So welcome, Paul Ann. How are you today? I am doing great. I am really excited. My book is now in paperback, and I'm just really excited about that. And I have a, I'm involved in a lot of advocacy efforts, and I really think that it's helped me more than anything else. Yep, keeping active and feeling purposeful. Mm -hmm. And yeah, congratulations on getting that book published. That's wonderful. Now, our guest today is Brian Van Buren, and he is a 66-year-old black gay man who lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he was diagnosed with vascular dementia and later early onset Alzheimer's in 2015. Brian was forced to retire from his job as an international flight attendant due to memory loss, and he is part of the National Advisory Group for the Alzheimer's Association as a member of the Early Onset Advisory Group. So welcome, Brian, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Um, Brian, one of the things that I always like to um, ask our guests is, you know, was there a history of dementia in your family? And if so, um, would you mind sharing that with us? Sure. Uh, when I was in uh, junior high school, my grandmother, who lived in Washington, D.C., would wander the streets at night and get picked up by the police. Uh, this happened several times, and they contacted my father. And for whatever reason, he did not intervene, so the state took custody of my grandmother and put her in a uh, home facility. Back in those days, they called it senility. Mm-hmm. But the reality was she had she had Alzheimer's. So she lived in that home for about five years and then eventually passed away. My mother has Alzheimer's, and she's still alive. She's 91 years old. I'm her primary caregiver. And my aunt, her sister, uh, died five years ago, and they had the cause of death on her death certificate as Alzheimer's as well as my other uh, paternal grandmother also had Alzheimer's. So there is definitely a history in my family. 
I guess so. Did you ever imagine a day when you would hear those words yourself, though? Unfortunately, yes. Did. Given given the genetic history, uh, I knew that eventually I probably would get diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Did you? Um, can I ask? Did you? Do you feel like you lived your life differently because of that knowledge at all? I'm sorry, I didn't ask the question. Oh, did you? Do you think that you lived your life differently knowing that that might be coming down the pike for you? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I wish I had paid more attention because um, looking back as far back as 10 years ago and talking with family members and other people, there were behaviors that I was exhibiting that definitely um, were a sign of me having uh, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And people, when I finally gave people my diagnosis, everyone kind of said, aha, that makes sense. So they're telling me some of the behaviors that I was doing not aware of it. And so once I told them my diagnosis, then everything made sense to them. Do you remember offhand what some of those symptoms were that, that you weren't aware of? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's funny now, but uh, I fly as a flight attendant, mm-hmm. and I would uh, call up my relatives and tell them to meet me at my hotel in San Francisco on my layover. And reality was I was flying to San Diego. So I did that a couple of times, forgetting what city I was actually going to. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, Now, um, I'm just going to ask Pauline, now, did you have a family history, too? I I didn't have a genetic history, but my father, who adopted me, had Alzheimer's, and he's, he's since passed. So I've been seeing it from both sides. Okay. Okay. Um, Brian, you know, when you got the diagnosis, even though you had kind of thought about it, what was your initial reaction to it? I went through a horrible depression for about two months where I just laid in my bed and cried. Mm -hmm. Um, It had more to do with my job because I knew that once my job found out, I was going to lose my job because of my memory loss. Um, I'm what was called the, the purser, and I'm the person in charge of the plane who's responsible for announcements, evacuations, and things like that. And announcements I had been making for 20 years, all of a sudden I couldn't remember them. And especially like in case of an evacuation, I can't go get a book and start reading from it. I have to know it off the top of my head. And so that, that was kind of a, a, a sign and that's what I was more depressed about was losing my identity. Because my identity was, I was an international flight attendant and mm-hmm. loved my job. Yeah, I, I could see where that would be really a difficult thing. Um, and Pauline, did you have kind of that same reaction with depression and, and great loss when you were diagnosed? I really did. And I was thinking about it the other day because I just saw a um, a post from two years ago that I had posted and I realized that really what has helped me the most is, is uh, finding a new purpose by getting involved in advocacy adver- opportunities. That has just helped me tremendously in terms of having a new purpose to replace the um, occupation that I had. Mm-hmm. Which makes so much sense, and yet I think it's still so overlooked how much purpose and fitting in 
and belonging um, do for all of us. And it's just, it's kind of a no, I mean, it's a no brainer. It applies to everybody in this world and why we don't realize how important that is when people are going through other losses, um, how much even I, I would imagine more critical that is um, in terms of, of feeling whole and feeling right. productive and, and um, connected. How did others around you um, react to it? I don't know if you had a partner at that time and, and family members, um, Brian, but what kind of reaction did you get? The reaction I get, still get from people is you don't look like you have Alzheimer's and you don't sound like you have Alzheimer's. You're very intelligent and very smart. But what they're basing that on is their perception of Alzheimer's is someone in their 70s and 80s mm-hmm. and incapacitated. They're not uh, aware of the diagnosis of early onset, which is really affecting a lot of people. Uh, I have a partner, and my partner was in total denial. She just kept saying, well, you know, I forget things too, and, you know, you just forget things. You don't have Alzheimer's. And I think it was based more on the fear that he was facing in terms of how was he going to be able to take care of me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I, I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I think that that would um, scare the bejesus out of anybody. Did your did your husband kind of respond that way too, Pauline? Uh, yes, he was. He was pretty understanding. I, I guess I was thinking about it, and I was thinking that um, a lot of it, I think, stems from a fear. People are very afraid of Alzheimer's and dementia, and they're more afraid now about getting Alzheimer's than cancer. Mm-hmm. So I think sure. that fear is what um, makes them want to go into denial and say, oh, you can't, have, you can't have dementia, you know, because that makes them feel that they're vulnerable too. Mm-hmm. Yep, I, I agree. Um, I think that's a really, really good point um, with that. I think in- what she said in terms of... Within the black community, it's probably even worse in terms of the, the denial and not wanting to believe the diagnosis. And generally speaking, um, Afro-Americans go in for treatment at much later periods when, say, the disease has already manifested itself. Uh, and a lot of it's based on they just don't want to know. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's uh, and that's a it's it's sad, um, but I understand that a lot of different cultures, um, you know, look at the disease very very differently, and everyone thinks that everyone's supposed to kind of follow one track. But um, right. you know, we we really need to expose this in a comfortable way. You know, I mean, nobody wants to say, hey, sign me up for this and let me be shunned. I mean, and that's the perception out there. If I get it, I'm going to be shunned. I'm not going to be valued. I'm not going to be able to participate. And that's one of the things I love so much about my job is being able to kind of expose um, people living with dementia like yourselves to say, my gosh, look at, at these guys are vital and vibrant and and informative and filled with knowledge, and but we have to we have to break those barriers down for people to even understand that you can have a conversation because for so long everyone's thought, well, you know, it's only people in end stages and this is affecting, you know, way more than that. 
And um, it's just so, so critical to change. Um, How has your life changed for you, Brian, other than I know that, you know, you you lost your job and that had to be really difficult. Um, How did you fill your day? How did you, you know, did you have family or friends that pushed away from you at all? Did you have to deal with any of that? I took some courses with AARP. Mm -hmm. And one of the courses is Life Reimagined. Oh, yeah. So... Basically, when you hit a bump in the road in your life, you have a choice of either um, reimagining your life in a different way or kind of grieving the old life. So I chose to uh, reinvent myself and become a very strong advocate for uh, Alzheimer's. So I do travel all over the country. Uh, I've given many speeches. And uh, I, believe it or not, am much happier today than I was, say, before I was diagnosed, because I really feel like I have a purpose in life now. I'm able to uh, share my life, my experience with people. And uh, I wear a T-shirt that basically says, you know, I have Alzheimer's. And that starts a lot of conversation with people when I'm out in public. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So you really tie in and agree with with what Paulana is saying about purpose and, and the power of it. And um, you know, I get that even in, in my work, you know, people are like, well, how can you do that? And it's, it gets to the point of how can you not, you know, and, um, and most people have never really lived with purpose. We've just done kind of what others have told us to do and, you know, played in the sandbox in the box and, and we haven't, (laughs) we haven't walked outside the lines or colored without the lines a whole lot. And there's, there's so much power, and um, exactly. so much to learn and so much to give when you're able to cross those those borders with that. What kind of challenges have you faced, um, you know, living alone with dementia? Um, well, for a period of time, I was having problems with uh, my balance and I was falling often. Uh, at one point, I had fallen and broken my nose, broke my wrist, broke my ribs, uh, and I wasn't sure what was going on. But after um, talking with my doctor, um, she said that's not that uncommon in terms of people having difficulty with their balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really drive anymore like I used to, which is kind of a loss because it it immobilizes me. Mm -hmm. Um, And just the memory part of it is really frustrating at times. I was also having problems with my speech for a while, and I would want to make a sentence, and I couldn't remember certain words. So uh, I actually did go through uh, about six months of speech therapy, which really, really helped correct that problem. Um. And then the other thing was I changed my diet. Um, I'm on the Mediterranean diet now, and I have and I exercise, and I have found that those two things really help with cognitive ability, like fifty percent improvement. Wow, that's that's huge. Um, Pauline, have you tried any diet changes for yourself? No, I really haven't. Um, I just try to keep a, a good, you know, good weight on me. But I, I was listening to what Brian said about the um, 
about the denial, and I was thinking more about that, and I think that that's a really big issue to talk about because everybody goes into denial when they first are told. There's, you know, for different people, it's different lengths of time, but you have to go through that grieving process and finally come to a point of, you know, you bargain with it, you get angry about it, you go through a lot of different emotions, but until you really get to a point of acceptance, you really can't be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And that goes with anything in life. You know, you gotta, you gotta right. settle in. You know, with it, and the more you fight, the more difficult um, things become in terms of, of finding that place of contentment. There, um, why do you do you suppose that that Afro um, Afro Americans um, diagnosis is twice as high as others. Do you have any opinions on that, Brian? Yes, yeah, some of the, some of the research they're doing shows that um, things like diabetes, hypertension, uh, high blood sugar, and unfortunately Afro Americans have a much higher percentage of all those diseases. They think there's a cofactor involved with uh, uh, the brain in terms of those things, and also a congestive heart failure. Unfortunately, I had all those symptoms. I had a heart attack two years ago. I had diabetes. I had high blood pressure. I had sleep apnea, and uh, those are definitely um, contributors to uh, Afro Americans having a much higher diagnosis as a result of it. Wow, you you went for the gold with the symptoms there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yourself up. <laughs> I did. <laughs> oh my goodness! I raised all of them. <laughs> Go ahead, Pauline. I was just going to say, Brian, I had a lot of the same symptoms. I had the or causes causation issues, I guess. I had the high blood pressure, high cholesterol, sleep apnea, and of course, my final diagnosis was vascular dementia, and um, it, it's it has gotten to the point that now I'm on oxygen because it's so critical when you have vascular dementia to get oxygen to the brain. So smoking and I smoked and, and, you know, all the things I shouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, the way I got diagnosed was uh, after I had my heart attack, I was like 50 pounds overweight. And so my doctor suggested that I have gastric bypass surgery. So I went through the whole procedure, and they make you jump through all kinds of hoops. And one of them is a psychiatric evaluation. And I flunked big time in terms of when she was trying to do cognitive skills with me. And she said, something's wrong, and you need to go get this checked out. So she referred me back to my family doctor who ordered an MRI, which came back showing that I had vascular dementia. Then I was referred to a neurologist, and I went through a whole battery of tests. I actually had a PET scan, and that confirmed the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Okay. Wow. It's it's just kind of amazing, all the things we know, and um, and yet, you know, all of us that are still fighting the battle against making changes in our life. And that includes myself, right. you know, I... I, um, my blood pressure is kind of erratic a little bit. Um, not, not, I mean, not a lot, but every now and then I'll, it'll, it'll go high, but I can usually sit in the chair and I say, give me two minutes or, or 60 seconds and I can pull it back down, um, just by making myself quiet. So I kind of think I have more of the white coat, um, you know, um, 
syndrome there. But, you know, I'm overweight and I don't exercise and I don't eat well and I know better. And I, right. you know, that's something I've really been talking to myself a lot on here lately that I just, I've got to change this. I just, I've got to change this. You know, I'm, I'm not being a good example at all um, on how to fend right. this stuff off. And, um, and I think those are conversations that we all need to have more um, in terms of what are the, what are the things that we can change and, you know, it would almost be interesting, and I haven't seen this done, um, but to have people with dementia write, you know, if they knew what they knew now, what would they do different um, right, in, exactly. in terms of seeing what would happen um, with that, or even just educating our kids and our grandkids that these were all contributing factors, and you can control that. But I don't think we have those conversations um, as deeply no, no. as we need to as well. Um, Brian, I, I wanted to, um, also ask you in terms of, you know, what is your thought about clinical trials and their importance in the landscape of, of finding a cure? Well, I was going to bring that up. Um, I live alone and unfortunately I've been denied some clinical trials because I do not have a caregiver living with me. Mm -hmm. And for some reason they want a caregiver, I guess, to get collect data from them. So there's been about five studies that I was turned down because of my living alone. So that does present challenges. Uh, but I'm a strong advocate of clinical trials, uh, especially I really push Afro-Americans to get involved in a lot of these studies because generally speaking, predominantly they're consisted of, of white men. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Given the statistics in terms of how blacks are affected, we need a much better um, representation in terms of some of these trials that are being uh, done. Mm-hmm. And su- and support groups as well. Uh, there's there's a really dramatic um, lack of of black people in the support groups online, and I know that people would really like to have that be changed. But they, right. uh, for some reason, they're not directed to the support groups. What well, you... I belong. I I actually do belong to a support group specifically for Afro Americans. Oh, really? And that, yeah, that's growing. Um, socially, you know, there is a difference between the black culture and the white culture, and black people in general feel more comfortable being around the their own people and so for a lot of these groups you know they they just don't have the representation of people of color so there's mm-hmm. been a couple of cities that have developed uh, support systems specifically for people of color and, it, and they've become very successful that's wonderful yeah because I, I know groups uh, well i know i'm sure the the um alzheimer's association which you're a part of thank goodness and getting your voice raised out there. But Us Against Alzheimer's is another one that has a specific group for that, and they are always looking for people um, for that group. And, um, you know, I I would love to... um, I would actually love to, to interview, if people are interested, one of those groups that are just for the African Americans, if they're willing to share, 
you know, why, why they're more comfortable. I, I just think it would be great information for all of us to, to, um, to learn from and to understand what their needs are. And that goes for, for any community out there, because, um, we all have, you know, our cultural differences and, and, um, but we need to learn and we need to still be able to get support to them. And maybe we have to approach that different, but we don't know when people don't talk to us, you know, as a whole. And so if there's a way to, I I don't want to say infiltrate them, but to have them kind of Uh come out and, you know, poke their heads out and say, Hey, this is what we're doing, you know, and this is why. And, and these are, these are the needs that we have. These are, this is the information that we've found out and um, be willing to share. So if you have any contacts with that, you know, please let me know, because I think that that would be a really valuable, valuable show. Um, right. Actually, I will bring that up in my next meeting. Okay. And I know there are people in that group who will be more than willing to uh, talk to you about it. Okay. That would be wonderful. That would be absolutely wonderful. Um I'm wondering, you know, with your um, with your partner, um, Brian, how how did he deal with the diagnosis, and how is he dealing with it currently? Are you still are you still together? Um, oh yeah, and, and well, what, we got married last year in July, as a matter of fact. Oh, congratulations! Well, that's wonderful. Well, we have a we have a a long distance international relationship. My partner is Brazilian. So we commute back and forth every month between Rio and Charlotte. Okay. But he's uh, he's my uh, primary. Uh, when I travel and I give speeches and things like that, I have to have an escort. So he's been my escort uh, to these various conferences. So okay. he has become extremely uh, supportive in terms of being a caregiver for me. Wonderful. Wonderful. And now you're taking care of your mom, correct? Is she living at home yeah. with you then? No, she's in the, as a matter of fact, she's in the skilled nursing home now. Okay, okay. And how is how is she adjusting? I don't know how far along she is in... Oh, she doesn't, she doesn't even know who I am. Okay, okay. Uh, I used to visit her, and she would say to me, you know, I have a son who never comes to see me. She's talking about me, uh-huh. and in the, in the beginning, I would just cry because I would feel so bad, and then just I just realized that that's part of the disease, unfortunately, yeah. um, and it, it's nothing personal about me. Mm-hmm. So I still go visit her uh, all the time, and we just have conversations, but uh, there's no mention of her son Brian anymore. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really interesting. My father, you know, before he passed on, he was the same. He really wasn't communicative anymore, and mm-hmm. it was very interesting. One At one point, one of the nurses came by and said to him, boy, you have a lovely daughter, and he just broke down crying. You know, oh. it, was, it was like he had lost me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he didn't know where I was, and it was just really mm-hmm. heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's hard. A lot of times I know people will think somebody else is their their son or their daughter, or, you know, my brother used to, my mom used to think my brother was her brother and he would get really Mm -hmm. upset with that. And I'm like, look in the mirror. You look like uncle Chuck when he was younger, (laughs) you know, she's probably back in time where she wasn't married and didn't have kids. And so we don't exist, but we have to, we have to believe that we have deeper connections than just a name. And, um, 
And and I think that that's really really important. So so Brian, when you got diagnosed, um, did you tell your mom, or was she too far along in the process? Oh, she was too far along to even understand it. Okay. Yeah, I know. I never did tell my mom I got divorced, <laughs> you know, because it would <laughs> it would just make her upset because she loved she loved my husband and um, he would still go visit her and things and. Um, was just really close, but it didn't make any sense at all to to upset her because we'd never be able to explain it to her. And so right. I think that those are things that people have to have to think of. As far as you know, um, tips for people. How what would you tell care partners would be the let's say three or five top things that you would like to see care partners do for people with dementia. Well, number one is I would tell care partners to please take care of themselves first. Uh, unfortunately, when you're a care partner, you have a tendency of neglecting yourself mm-hmm. to the point where you get so overwhelmed. And I use the analogy of uh, when I was flying as a flight attendant, we would do a demonstration with the oxygen mask, and we would tell people, when the oxygen mask came down, put it over your face and then assist the person you're with. And that's basically, I think, what caretakers need to do. They also need to be able to communicate with others so they don't feel so alone and so isolated and understand a lot of the behaviors that they see. Other people can explain to them that, you know, they're experiencing the same thing. So um, they can find tools in terms of how to deal with it better for themselves and the person they're taking care of. Mm-hmm. Any Anything else? I, I was just going to add, I think the, the piece about care partners and taking care of care partners is really, really critical, and I think it's really under, um, not talked about it, but nearly as much as it should be. I think that the funding and the research that is going on for with Alzheimer's and other dementias is very focused on a cure, and, of course, I think that's very important but I think there really needs to be, be funding for people who are care partners and families that are taking care of people with dementia, and there needs to be money spent on that front, too. Absolutely. I I agree. I agree uh, very much. How about you, Pauline? Any, any tips for the audience in terms of how you would... Um, you know, well, just anything, uh, you know, on the topic of care for yourself or for the care partner that you'd like well, to see? Well, I, I really think that the most important thing for for the person themselves is that they have to go through that grieving process. You know, they can't stay in denial. They have to move through to the anger, to the bargaining, right. and to the final acceptance. And until um, they reach that point of acceptance, they're really going to be miserable. I recently read a a post that I had posted two, year, two, two or three years ago, and it was talking about how I was so frustrated about losing things and I was so upset. And it's so interesting because now I look back and I think, you know, those things don't bother me anymore because I've accepted that I have certain deficits and I've made changes to accommodate for them. So now I, I'm, I'm at, at so much more at peace with myself. That's wonderful. That that sense of of letting go is is really important. Brian, how about you? Do you have any other uh, tips? Um, laugh. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> I think laughter is one of the best things you can possibly do for yourself. Uh, I laugh at things now that before I used to get uh, overwhelmed with, like losing my phone all the time, losing my keys. Um, I uh, One of the unfortunate things is living alone is you don't have someone around to uh, observe your behavior. So you may be doing things that aren't quite right. Like uh, last week I went to church and I had my clothes inside out and one of the ladies stopped me before I went to church and she said, because people at my church know I have Alzheimer's, so she stopped me, she said, she said, Brian, I think you may want to go to the bathroom and put your clothes on the right. So well, I laughed. It, it was funny. It, it must be really hard to be alone with this disease. I, I really, uh, I, I can't imagine. Yeah, does that, it has does that scare you, Brian, thinking about that as the disease progresses, or do you have plans for the future? Or? Oh, we have plans. Oh, we have plans. Um, my partner will move here to the States when I get to the point where I'm no longer able to take care of myself. One of the things I did for myself was I have a life coach mm-hmm. who I meet with every week, and we talk about everything, my behavior. Uh, I go through periods of depression, of paranoia, of anger, and a lot of times it's not real, but when I'm able to discuss it with her, um, it, it really alleviates a lot of the the problems I have. She's also pushed me to get all my things in order. Like I never had a will. I never had a power of attorney or any of those things. And mm-hmm. I have everything taken care of now um, because I was procrastinating. Because, you know, I'm I'm 60 years old and I'm not going to die and I don't, don't need any of that stuff. And I think a lot of people my age do that. So uh, it's kind of a way of not accepting the fact that you're getting older. But uh, I'm really glad that... Um, I was able to do that and, and find her. She's a um, social worker who deals with people with Alzheimer's. So uh, she knows her stuff, and that really has made a big difference in my life. Oh, that's and it's good. so critical to get those, that paperwork in order while you're still considered, um, you know, uh, right. cognizant. Because if you wait too long, then it becomes an issue as to whether you really are able to complete that documentation. Right. Yeah, and so critical, so, so very critical. Well, I thank you both for being with us, and I'm just going to ask um, each of you if you have any final comments at all that you want to share with our audience. I'm just very thankful for the work that you do, Lori. Oh, thank you. I really enjoy it. It's um, it's my passion, you know, and uh, it's brought me purpose, you know. Great. So, well, thank you. Uh, Paul Ann, anything? I agree totally. I mean, you've been a, an incredible person and support person in my life, and the things that you do uh, is, are just wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thank you both. Well, in wrapping up here, I just want to um, thank Alive and Social for uh, hosting our program here. If you haven't listened to What's for Dinner Tonight uh, with Rachel Perrin, that might be something that you want to look at. Their podcasts are usually 10 to 15 minutes long and they're perfect when you're busy and hungry. You can also go to kowalskis.com K-O-W-A-L-S-K-I-S.com uh, for a full um, delicious seasonal menu. 
that they have there. Also want to remind everybody again, come and join us on the cruise. We just really, we are so excited about this. It's going to be a lot of fun. November 11th through the 18th, or if you'd like to be able to host an individual or a family um, or just help out with a donation in any fashion, we would love to hear from you. Um, please reach out to me at Lori at Alzheimer'sSpeaks.com. Last, uh, for the radio show here, we, you know, all of our shows are archived, so you don't have to miss anything. You can listen at your leisure, and we've got like six years of shows, so lots of great information. If you're going to be in Woodbury, May 20th, um, around um, 11 o'clock, I'm going to be doing a uh, screening of His Neighbor Phil at St. Therese in Woodbury, and May um, 23rd, we're going to be doing a screening of His Neighbor Phil in Ellsworth, Wisconsin. Just reach out for me, and I can get you more information on that. In closing, um, just remember what your memory chip teaches you, which is one of our free tools on our site. Uh, Keep in mind, are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? That's really being person-centered. Have a great week, everyone. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.